0: We've been in a year-long initiative uh, called the Year of Biblical Literacy, where we've been taking on this really daunting task of reading through the Bible and talking about it uh, as we read through it in our community groups and also um, talking about what we've been learning on Sunday through these kind of heavy or big chunks of series that we've been doing throughout the year. And, um, and guys, we're almost into the New Testament. Are you excited about the New Testament? Yes. Everyone said amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the new time. Okay, so um, we're almost there. Some of you guys are like, I, I was kind of already there. I'm not going to lie. I skipped ahead, and you guys just like quit. Like, I'm going to John because I understand John. So if that was you, I mean, you th- stay there. That's fine. We'll be there. We'll catch up to you soon enough. But everyone else, we're still, we're almost done. A couple Last week, we finished, and we read through the book of Daniel. And like I said, we started a series, a very important series, I think, like kicking off the end of our summer. Um, When everyone's kind of coming back from holiday and vacation and new people kind of move into the city during this time of the year, Um, it's their first little like taste of living in San Francisco after they've um, finished university or grad school, whatever, and they get their first job in San Francisco. This is where you go go to work. And so um, we usually, uh, this time of year, try to teach a series, uh, a sermon series on the city and how to live into the city. How do we live into this city, San Francisco, in our cultural moment? And our friend John Tyson from Trinity Grace Church last week from uh, Trinity Grace Church in New York City kicked us off and did an incredible job squeezing so much content into 35 minutes. I have no idea how he did it. He talks really, really fast. So you might need to like, go back and listen to the podcast on slow motion to get what he was doing. But um, John taught a, a, ser- a series of sermons on Daniel uh, last year at his church, and they've really inspired this series. And he was kind enough to frame up the series um, on being a creative minority. And I really do encourage you to get the podcast. So here's a definition of creative minority that he left us with last week. So I'll start there and we'll pray and we'll get into today. So he said this, this is how he defined a creative minority. This is, he summed up his teaching like this last week. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. That is so good. A creative minority is a Christian community, a church, and a web of stubbornly loyal relationships that we're so committed to each other that you could almost call us stubborn in the way that we just won't like untangle from each other knotted together in a living network of persons. We don't just show up for church on Sunday. We have like a living network of people that live together in life rhythm together Um, in a complex and challenging cultural setting, that's our city, who are committed. And why are we doing all this? Because we're committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. So today we are looking at Daniel 1, as Carrie just read for us. And I want to focus our time this morning on verse 8, where it says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine. But Daniel resolved. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this, this church community. Um, just in traveling, I just I'm always reminded how much I... I love that unique thing that you're doing in this community, in this time in history. I'm really thankful for those that are f- practicing the way of, of Christ together in this, in this city at this time. Um, and I pray today you teach us, Lord. I ask God that you would spur us on to love you more, to passionately pursue you, to love each other well. I mean, all these things that can be, can you know, coming out of our mouths sound very cliche, but they're very hard to do. And we need your strength. Spirit, we need you to lead us. We need you to, to inspire us, those that just feel dead or just worn out or like um, so overtaken by the, the intoxication of San Francisco. We need to be shaken awake. We need to be like... Um, arrested again to the the call of the high call of Christ, and so awaken us to that. By your Spirit, teach us this morning um, and change us. We don't want to leave, leave the same, God. And I pray so. I pray that you'd use my words, God. I could I could speak to people's like ears, but only you can change hearts. And so I completely rely on you to do that. So go before us. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. A couple months ago, a friend of mine sent me uh, a book he found during his travels. He's a uh, set designer in Hollywood, so he has to, when he travels, he has to pop into like, obscure stores and look for things for um, movies, you know, sets and whatever. Um, he came across this old book from the 1950s about San Francisco, and he sent it to me. It's called The Crusade at Golden Gate. Here's a picture of the book. That on the front, if you didn't know, is Billy Graham. And uh, clip art, he wasn't that big. You know? And the Golden Gate wasn't that small, so that's like edited. Um, But uh, he sent me this book, and um, I've read a lot about this city. I've kind of spent the last eight years of my life um, studying San Francisco, both as a pastor and and, um, someone who just really loves the culture of San Francisco. But you know what, and this is ignorance on my part, I never knew that Billy Graham did a crusade, had a crusade in San Francisco. He had a crusade here in 1958. From April 27th to June 22nd in 1958, Billy Graham had a very large crusade. The center of it was right across the street from our church offices. There was a ballpark right there um, where the San Francisco Seals used to play, and that's where they met. Incre- crazy. Anyway, so I'm reading this, and the, uh, a writer for the SF Examiner at the time, who was also a minister, um, wrote a book about the crusade, and this, this is the book here. And the opening chapter of the book is called The Place. And he's talking about the place, San Francisco. What is the spiritual climate of San Francisco? What's it like to be a Christian in San Francisco? What's it like to be a church in San Francisco up against uh, the culture of San Francisco? What is it like? What does it feel like to be a Christian? And, And remember, this is 1958. This is the 50s. This is what he writes nearly every other sizable city in America has been born out of a strong Christian witness which has helped to shape the city's character one thinks of John Cotton in early Boston William Penn in Philadelphia Peter, that guy in New York (laughs) no one knows how to say his last name Um, Lord Baltimore in Baltimore Dwight L. Moody in Chicago to name only a few no matter how perverse the elements that later crept in, and American, our American cities, by and large, have never been able completely to shake off their heritage. But San Francisco has never known that kind of ordered Christian conscience. Thus, St. Francis gave his name, but never his spirit, to the brawling young city. The church has not been arranged on the side of the gospel against its environment. Thus, um, oh wait, uh, against its environment. Too often, it has been quietly absorbed by its environment. Let me read that sentence again because I really messed it up. The church has not been arranged on the side of the gospel against its environment. Too often, it has been quietly absorbed by its environment. Thus, one honest present-day minister of a large city church has suggested that what the pastors have done for San Francisco may not be as significant as what San Francisco has done to the pastors. Are you kidding me? This is 1950. San Francisco. This is before the sexual revolution of the 60s in San Francisco. This was before Anton LaVey started the Church of Satan in San Francisco. This is before Jim Jones and Jonestown. This is when San Francisco was kind of innocent. This is, like, if you've ever read the book Season of the Witch, this is kind of where the book starts, and it doesn't even get interesting until the 60s. This is like Mayberry, San Francisco, 1950s, and he's saying this. If that was then... How much more now is the church seduced in the city to be quietly absorbed by its environment? You feel it. I know you feel it if you've lived here long enough. I know you feel that pressure in this city. How much does this city push on you and press on you morally and ethically, politically, emotionally, and sexually? I would bet if you've lived in San Francisco for over five years, most of your views on things have changed, some for better, hopefully, but a lot of us we know not for better. You might find yourself doing things or believing things that you would never have believed or done just five years ago or just 10 years ago. Like he writes, quietly absorbed by its environment. That is so haunting. This is what happens. And if that was then, how much more today are pastors prone to be changed by the city rather than to change the city? By the way, I feel this one. I feel this one personally. I feel this in my gut and in my bones. I know this temptation very well. It is so hard to fight this. I promise you, as a minister in this city, it is so hard to try to change the city more than it changes you. It is a fight, all the time. If anyone knew this kind of pressure to be quietly and quickly absorbed by his environment, it was Daniel. And if we're to learn from anyone how not to be absorbed, but actually to shape and have influence in our environment, or as Tyson put it last week, a creative minority, it's learning from Daniel. We have to learn from Daniel. So let's look at Daniel 1. It's important to learn how in the world do we. As followers of God, if you are here this morning, and I, I, I apologize, this, this sermon is going to be a little bit biased. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is, this is kind of the, the, the setting of this book. Um, there are other sermons that we've done. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're really looking to, to if you're curious about following the way of Christ, we have... A bunch of sermons I can point you to that we've talked about, but today I really want to specifically talk about if you are a follower of Christ living in San Francisco, how in the world do you do it without being subtly absorbed into this environment where you're not distinct, that you're not even really, you don't need, for all intents and purposes, you're not a Christian anymore. How in the world do you do that? So um, let's look at Daniel 1. Three movements. These are not creative. Cut me some slack my first week back. Okay, so here it Three (laughs) movements what happened to daniel? these are like literally elementary but it is what it is what happened to daniel what daniel did about it and some implications i told you it's not good but it's going to get us through today so what happened to daniel look at verses 1 and 2 Um, It says, uh, in the reign of Jehoiakim, his 30-year king of Judah, he was not a good king at all, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it and ransacked it and leveled it. And, And it says the next sentence, this is a very strange way of wording such a tragic event. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. The Lord delivered, it says, along with some of the articles from the temple of their God. And they carried them off the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure of the house of his God. Um, what's going on here? Well, first off, remember, we've been learning this for the last year, or over the last year, this, this calendar year, that God has called Israel to be his covenant people. He's called Abraham out and said, I'm going to make you a people so that you can be a light to the nations. And as you are a light to the nations, a light to the world, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. But you have, to, you have to be in covenant partnership with me. You have to live separate than the world. And then you're going to be a light to the world. But the people of Israel have stubbornly refused year over year, generation after generation. It goes from bad to worse, to bad to some reform, but to bad again and some reform and bad again. They've over and over again turned to idolatry, the worship of other gods. They've turned over and over again to injustice of the poor and the foreigner and the exile. And, the, and, and, and as they've done these things, God is going to judge them. And after hundreds and hundreds of years of God warning Israel over and over again if you don't stop, I will judge you. If you do not stop, I will bring you into exile. Finally, God says, enough is enough. And God like removes his hand of protection, and Israel is sacked by Babylon, destroyed, and drug into exile. And exile is like the context for this whole book. And it says, the opening line says, The Lord delivered, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into um, Nebuchadnezzar's hand. This is a this is very strange, by the way. Um, this is actually, if you, if you take notes in your Bible or you're taking notes, you can write that when it says in verse 2 that the Lord delivered, this is actually uh, an act of God's faithfulness. When it says the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, this is an act of God's faithfulness. Now, why do I say this is an act of God's faithfulness? Because Israel was disobedient, and Year after year, for decades, God was saying he would do this. If you did not repent, I would act decisively to discipline you and purify you. And God was faithful to his promise. We tend to think of God's faithfulness in more positive terms, don't we? God is faithful. He'll never leave us. But, it's, but we don't often think of the negative terms of faithfulness. And God is faithful to also the negative terms as well. Like when God says that, um, if you abide in me, I will prune you. You're like, whoa, that doesn't sound good. God's faithful to do that in your life. He is faithful to cut you back so that you can have better fruit in your life. That's a promise of God, but it doesn't feel good when God is faithful to that promise. When God is faithful to the promise of pruning you, it doesn't feel good. But God is faithful to that promise or the promise to discipline you like a good father. That's a promise in the book of Hebrews that God is a good father, you are his child, you are not illegitimate, you're a legitimate child, so God will discipline you. No one likes that form of God's faithfulness. No one says, God, be faithful and discipline me. We don't sing those songs. No, one, no worship leader writes that song. <laughs> they should, but no one does. We wouldn't sing it, we wouldn't buy it, we wouldn't sing it, we'd play it once, no one would sing that song. Like, I'm not singing sing that song. But this is true. Like, we don't, but this is like a negative side to God's faithfulness, but it's still God's faithfulness. It's a part of God's character that he is faithful to. He is faithful to discipline us. He is faithful to prune us. So, it may be hidden at first sight, but the book of Daniel starts with God's faithfulness. The Lord delivered. God was faithful to do what he said he was going to do. And then there's this whole thing about, like, the temple getting sacked and that all the idols are taken from from. Um, the temple and brought into the temple of of babylonia Um, this is almost like our god beat up your god Um, our god is greater than your god so we destroyed your temple and we took your god's stuff and we put them into our temple and our god is greater than your god Um, this is I, i i think this is so interesting this is like a very humiliating thing to happen to to yahweh to god and God allows it. To be, dist- to, t- for your, the, the centerpiece of your activity on earth, to allow it to be destroyed. And allow it to be plundered. And allow your people to be carried off in exile so that you can purify them. So that you can show yourself faithful to them is humiliating. But this is what God does. But not only does Babylon, Babylon take stuff, Babylon takes people, because it says in verse three and four, um, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. So not only did they cart away stuff, um, they carted away people, and they were looking for a certain kind of person. Look at who they're looking for. They said Ashpenaz were looking for young men without any physical defect, handsome, so, I mean, basically perfect, right? Showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. These people were like um, the, the tributes that were bred and volunteered for the Hunger Games. Like those people that you're like, those are, you're like bred for this thing. Like this is what, these are the kind of people that they, that they were. And, and then it says at the end, he was to teach them the, the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So they were to cart off, and this is where Daniel comes into the story, because Daniel and his, his three friends are some of the best of the best of Israel, uh, of Jerusalem, and they're taken away from Jerusalem and brought into Babylon. They take him into Babylon, and they take him into the king's service, and this is where the social engineering begins. This is where an intensive cultural immersion program to turn them from, from foreigners into insiders happens. They had a new language. They were taught a new language. They were given a new education. They were given new clothes. They were given a new diet. They were given new names. And names in, in, in ancient Israel weren't just names. People didn't just like look up baby names and ones that were like popular but not many people had them. And like that's what my kid's name is going to be. These were identity statements they were even prophetic. So when, when someone was named in ancient Israel, it was like prophetic over them. And they were also testimonies to the character of God. So when you said your name or someone called you by your name, it didn't just say something about you, it said something about your God. So Daniel's name is God is my judge. And that, that not only was who Daniel was, Daniel's like, I'm gonna live for God because God is my. The, it's like I live for an audience of one. Not only did it mean that to Daniel, Not only was that like an identity statement over him, but also said something, that God is judge. It said something about God, and it said something about him. And so when they changed their names to Babylonian names, and his name was changed to Belteshazzar, when they changed their names, they didn't just change it to some random name. Just like, uh, um, Daniel's hard to pronounce for us, so we're just gonna change your name to something simple, like Bob or whatever, you know? Like, they didn't just change their names. Daniel meant something, and they didn't go, like, "My, your name is now River. Like, well, what does your name mean? Like, some hippie name, like River, or whatever. You know, like, what does your name mean? Well, it means, like, um, you know, like a, a body of water that goes from mountain to ocean, or something like that. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. They didn't just name him, him random name. They named him Belteshazzar, which means treasurer of Bel, or treasurer of their god, or one of their gods, I should say. So they, like, it was like a slap in the face, like, no, no longer will you have this identity over you that... This is your name. Your name is now this. And not only did all of this happen to them, even more than that, many people, many scholars believe um, and historians believe that, that they were ma- likely made eunuchs. Um, if you don't know what a eunuch is, it's basically you were uh, castrated so you, you, you were not a threat to the king's harem or not a threat to his wives. Um, I had a, a friend of mine who was uh, like one of my favorite stories? I've been waiting like seven years to tell you this story. Um, <laughs> he told me this story years ago that he was a, a youth pastor, and these kids were, came to faith in Christ, and um, they didn't know that, oh, they were all running a marathon. They didn't know what to name themselves. They had to come up with a team name. And so they were just Christians. They started reading the Bible, and they found this name, word in the Bible, Eunuchs. And they're like, that name sounds really cool we're the eunuchs, so they had shirts made that said eunuchs on them, and they ran this race, and they showed up to church the next day with the shirts. He's like, what in the world is that? And He's like, oh, you know, like, we're representing Jesus. We're like, this, this word comes from the Bible. Like, I don't, I, don't think you, I don't think that word means what you think it means. I don't. Do you know what that word means? You're like, no, we just found it in the Bible. We thought it was an awesome word. Just in case you didn't know what that word meant, that's what it means. Um, So a lot of people think that that's what happened to this. So literally everything, their future was taken from them. Their past was taken from them. And then not just erased, but like coded over. Like you're going to learn a new language now, a new education, a new way of living, everything. This is the setup for the whole book right here. These four Jewish teenagers are taken from their homeland. A place where they were set apart as the people of God and called to be faithful to God alone. And they lived and breathed this every single day in, in Jerusalem. They, they, would, they would eat this way and dress this way and act this way, and they would have it on the front of their mind. The, the way that they walked, the way they Sabbathed, the way that they lived, everything was to be devoted to Yahweh, to God. And they were ripped from that. And they were torn from their roots and their homes, and they were isolated and taken to Babylon, where they were immediately brought under the pressure to become Babylonian. They were no longer Jewish. They were to lose their Jewishness. They were to lose their distinctiveness. They were to lose it all and become Babylonian. The hope would be that they would assimilate into Babylonian culture, that you wouldn't even know why they... Why they acted or reacted or made decisions or the way or why they influenced others in a Jewish way of life anymore. That all of that was erased. The way they acted wasn't Jewish, the way they reacted wasn't Jewish, the way that they, they made decisions or the way they influenced others, it was all to be erased. So, next slide. The question the book raises is how do you live and even succeed in a progressive, and competing environment as you remain faithful to your calling and distinctiveness as a follower of God. This is the setup for the whole book right here. The question this whole book raises is how do you live and even succeed because Daniel and his friends succeeded in a progressive and competing environment as you remain faithful to your calling and distinctiveness as a follower of God. How could these four famous young men have gained such success in a pagan court without being tainted by it? How can you gain success in this world of capitalism and image and politics and consumerism without being tainted by it? This is resilience. This is what it means to be resilient. How do you become resilient? How in the world do you compete in in San Francisco? and have success in San Francisco that's ran on image and politics and capitalism and consumerism and technology. And how do you do that without being so destroyed by it that you're no longer distinct as a follower of God anymore? There is nothing that separates you from anyone else at all. Maybe what you do on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half, maybe that, but that's about it. And maybe that like maybe twice a month. Other than that, nothing is different. How do you maintain resilience? So what did Daniel do? Verse 5, it says, the king assigned to them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were trained, um, they were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Verse 8. This is the, the hinge of the entire book right here. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. But, Daniel resolved. What Daniel did here as a teenager, he was a teenager, by the way. He was somewhere between the ages of um, probably 14 and 18. What Daniel did here as a teenager had effects on his life when he was over 70 years old, still living in Babylon. What he did right here right at this moment, allowed him to chart a course to be faithful to God in Babylon for over 70 years. What did he do? What's going on? Um, Part of the Babylonian cultural immersion project was to eat food and wine from the king's table. And I promise you, this was really good food and wine. This was very, very good. This is like subtly brilliant right here this cultural immersion project that Babylon came up with was subtly brilliant we imbibe culture through its food and drink we imbibe a culture through its food and drink if any one of your friends has ever asked you who live in San Francisco when they're here to visit what to do most of your list will be things you eat and drink like, hey, what do I do in San Francisco? And you give them lists lists of places to eat and drink. Ash and I were just in Paris. And what I mean by we were in Paris is that we ate our way through Paris. <laughs> and when, any, when you ask anyone, just give us a list of Paris, most of the places were places to eat. Eat here and go here. And what, imagine if we went through Paris and didn't eat a thing. If we brought like our own kind bars the whole time and just ate those. <laughs> you were You did not go to Paris. I'm sorry. You did not do it. You, you, we and I, you and I, we imbibe, we take in a culture through its food. It's called soft influence. It's subtle. It's powerful. Before you know it, you want to live, like, in Paris at a cafe, like, smoking cigarettes all day. They just want to do that for life. You're like, it just imbibe it. Like, that's all I want to do. That's it. That's all I want to do in life. I'm okay with not doing anything else in life. You take in its culture through its food and its drink. That's how you imbibe a culture. This is where um, we literally take in culture, right? I mean, you take it into your body. You ingest it. It becomes a part of you. But Daniel, it says, resolved not to defile himself this way. Now, why didn't he eat the food? Of all the places to stop, why food? I might have stopped with clothes, but not food. I'm, like, I'm not going to wear it. I'm going to eat your food, but I'm not, not going to wear that. Like, your food looks good, but your clothes don't look good. Like, that, I I probably would have why did he stop with food? Why did Daniel say, I'm not going to defile myself with food? Well, some people think uh, think it was because the food was sacrificed to idols. Um, That's true. But um, probably so were the vegetables that he got instead. So that kind of doesn't hold that much water. It was probably all of it. All the food there was sacrificed to idols. Some people say it wasn't kosher. Well, maybe. Um, But wine was kosher, and he said no to the wine as well. Whatever the case is here, food for Daniel is the sticking point. Food for Daniel is where he draws a line. He knows, Daniel knows, and this is what takes immense amount of wisdom. This takes immense amount of willpower and strength and dependence on God. He knows that food is where he would be compromising his devotion to God. All of these things he would take on. He would take on a new language. He would take on new clothes. He would take on a new rhythm of life. He would take all of that, but food is where he said, no, if I do this, I will lose it all here, and I will not lose my faith. I will not lose my distinctiveness. I will not stop being me. I am, Daniel, someone where God is my judge, and I will stand before God. One commentator writes this. Accepting the palace provision involved a compromise of faith in a way that accepting a share in its life, its work, its education, and its names do not. Believers in other contexts or in other cultures might have identified their sticking point elsewhere. The point is that the line should be drawn somewhere. Total assimilation is to be avoided. The point is for Daniel... That he said in his heart, if I take the food, it's over for me. And Daniel had to make a move where if he was going to live a life faithful to God in Babylon. See, that was his point. That was his hope. As I live in Babylon, I'm going to remain faithful to God. He had to do something where all his dependence was still on God. And if he, and if God didn't act, and if God didn't move, he was stuck. He was lost. He had to make a decisive move to where, okay, I'm in a place where I can completely just receive this culture and be so influenced by this culture that I've lost all of my distinctiveness. I have to draw the line somewhere. And I have to draw the line in a place where I, where it's going to force me to be dependent on God. And in a place where if God doesn't act, I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm toast. If God doesn't act, I'm done. So what does he do? He decides to be a vegan. Now, if you're already vegan, you're almost there. I mean, like, you're close, see? You're like, like I knew it. I got it. Um, now, vegan, being a vegan is great. But if you're training, physically training, probably not the best thing. Now, some of you are like, oh, no, 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 I beg to differ. Like, you know, vegan protein shakes and kale. No, no, no. They didn't have that. They didn't have Vitamixes then, okay? Think leeks. Like, he lived off leeks. Think that. Don't think all the, like, exotic protein-packed vegetables that you eat today. He lived off of something like leeks. And to be strong while eating vegetables in this culture... At this time, Daniel had to rely on God for his training. During this three-year period of living off of vegetables, he had to rely on God for his strength. He had to rely on God for for, for his physical capacity, and God had to intervene or he was done. And when he rolled out the plan, Ashpenaz, because Ashpenaz said, hey, this is, we're giving you all this stuff, and then you're going to eat from this food. And, then, and Daniel said, okay, um, this is where I draw a line. Ashpenaz, I, I, I can't eat from that table. Ashpenaz was, um, was, was shocked. He was puzzled. To Ashpenaz, who was overseeing his training, Ashpenaz knew no other way to be strong or to look good than by eating food supplied by the king. To when Daniel said, no, I'm not going to eat the food, I just maybe just vegetables. He's like, wait, wait, wait. You're saying that you're not going to eat from the king's table, and your whole, the whole point of this at the end of this three years is that you're strong, that you're smart, because you're going to go into the service of the king. So you have to be strong, and you have to be smart. I don't know any other way for you to be strong and good-looking and smart than by eating from the food the king supplies. And Daniel goes... There's actually another way. There's another way, and I want you to try me. There's another way, and it's really me being reliant on my God. It's not being dependent on the king of Babylon, but the king of the world. I can be dependent on God, and I can trust God. And I can trust God for my my strength, and I can trust God for my physical appearance, and I can trust God for my education. I can, I can, just let me have this. And Ashton is, doesn't really want to do it, Daniel says, okay, just, just do a controlled trial. So just a three-week, a, three a couple-week period, and just see. And Ashton agrees to this controlled trial, and then the result is this, verse 15 through 17. At the end of the 10 days, they look healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. They looked better and healthier. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave. To these four young men who did this, God says, I will not be outgiven. You've given, you've given your devotion to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to devote myself to you. I'm going to give you knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could in, understand visions and dreams of all kinds. By this moment that happened with Daniel, this decisive action. Okay, that's what, that's what went on, and then eventually he's presented to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar, and there's no one better. There was no one better than Daniel and his friends. No one. So that's the story. That's what, what, what went on in Daniel 1. What are some implications that we can draw from this? Notice that in this story, um, there wasn't that much danger written all over it. Like, you don't read Daniel 1 and go, oh my gosh, I'm so afraid. Like, there's not that much danger in Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 3, you get the raging furnace of fire that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are threatened to be thrown into. That's danger, right? You're like, fire in a furnace, hot, consumed, they might die. There's danger. Daniel in Daniel 6 gets thrown into the lion's den. You guys remember that story from Sunday school? Dangerous, right? Like, I'm going to be eaten alive by a lion. That's dangerous. This, Daniel 1, doesn't really have that much danger it doesn't seem like it. But Daniel chapter 1 is all about subtle intoxication of Babylon. It's actually very dangerous. It's dangerous like San Francisco's dangerous. Subtle intoxication. And that is very dangerous, if not more dangerous. And we need wisdom to see it because we can't often see it. We can't often see the intoxication. We cannot often see how, how subtle San Francisco is pushes on us and plays on us and seduces us and woos us to itself. So we'll go back to where we started with the story of San Francisco and the quote I read where he says, the church has not been arranged on the side of the gospel against its environment. Too often, it has been quietly absorbed by its environment. You know what this is? This looks like compromise this takes the form of slowly drifting away from God. Slowly drifting away. It's subtle to what you used to use your money on like five years ago and how you spend your money today. It's that subtle. It's a shift in what you buy. It's a shift in how much you drink what you used to drink and how much you used to drink five, 10 years ago. I mean, if you're five years removed from 21, that is. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. It's so what you used to watch and what you're watching now. Things like little gateway things that we watch on Netflix or HBO Go or whatever, like that subtly ebb away. Like if you were to show that to yourself like eight years ago, you're like, oh my gosh, no, no, I can't watch that. Now you're like, oh man, that's a great story. It's like the story, right, or whatever. And we get into it and we're like, everyone's watching and everyone's like live tweeting about it, whatever. And we just get sucked into it. Where it like erodes us, it erodes our relationship. We know, we watch it, we're like, this is sinful. This is so bad, but it's so good. How can I not watch it? It's just a story, it's life, it's real life, man. Whatever, right? And we say, it's just, it's about where our boundaries were and where, there are, where they are now. And it's a subtle erosion of those things. And I'm just going to trust right now that whatever is, like, whatever, that the, the Holy Spirit is bringing things to your mind, to your heart right now. Ways that you've compromised. Ways that you've drifted. And you're in a place where right now you're just not happy. You're not full of joy and passion for God because you're stuck in compromise. You can't be happy in sin because you have the spirit of God living in you. So every time you sin, like it's not as good as it was because you have the spirit of God in you that's grieved when you sin. Like you want to enjoy, like yeah, uh, yeah. And you're like conflicted. Like I want to enjoy this thing. But but the next day or right after or whatever, like there's this, the spirit of the living God that's in me that's grieved by this compromise, that's grieved by this sin. And so I can't enjoy it like I used to enjoy sin. But then you're not really fully enjoying God either because your sin and your compromise is keeping you from the peace of God, keeping you from the presence of God. And so what's needed right now is action. What's needed is decisive action. Um, There's a book by by, uh, Brother Lawrence called The practice of the presence of God. It's a great, amazing little book of thoughts and journal entries from Brother Lawrence, who devoted his life as a monk to cultivating an awareness of God at all times and doing all things. And he says, the way to practice the presence of God is by renouncing once and for all whatever does not lead to God. Renouncing once for all, whatever does not lead to God. Does that thing lead you to God? Well, no, but it's just like a thing I do. Does it lead you to God? No, renounce it. Renounce everything does not lead you to the presence and the peace and the joy of God. And you might be thinking, well, how in the world will I do anything in this life? Daniel did. Daniel became like the most powerful person in the most powerful nation of the known world at that time as a follower and a devoted follower of Yahweh. Renounce. Daniel had a resolve in his heart, I will not do that. I will not go down that road. I will not eat from that thing. And if this means my death and possibly even Ashkenaz's death and possibly the, the death of my four friends, then so be it. I'm not going down this road we also not only do we have to renounce, we have to resolve. We have to resolve ourselves to a greater vision of life. We have to resolve ourselves to a life lived for God's joy and love and peace, God's glory. Like we have to resolve ourselves to go, I'm actually gonna live my life in San Francisco to please God. God is like my only judge. I'm going to live a life that pleases God. Um, When I was a young uh, pastor, I talked to the Book of Daniel years and years and years ago. Um, gosh, like fifteen years ago now, or something like that. And I was young, uh, and I remember this. 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 But Daniel resolved was like kind of did something in me and stuck in me. Like there's some things that I, as a as a Christian, a follower of Christ, follower of Jesus, and as a husband at the time, um, and as a pastor, I had to resolve myself to do. And I have to resolve myself to do them almost every day or over and over and over again. And Daniel was inspiration, but also this quote from a, a, a minister named Jonathan Edwards, preacher, very famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards. In 1723, he wrote his, quote, resolutions, 70 revolutions in all, when, uh, resolutions in all when he was 20 years old. He was just entering into his career as a minister, and he wrote 70, down 70 things that he would resolve himself to do. He says this. This is how he starts. Being aware that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And then he says this. Frequently, I hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved, that I will live just as I think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to an old age. Resolved, I will look ahead to I'm 80 years old and what kind of man or woman do I want to be? Resolved, I'm going to start plotting a course right now, and I'm going to be that right now. I'm going to do that right now. I'm not going to let my career and then all the, like, the, the managing of my family and managing of my schedule and managing of this crazy city and managing of my social media profile, all of that to overwhelm what I'm resolving to be when I, as, as I walk in journey with God. Resolve, I'm going to do that now. I'm going to start living and plotting that now, and I'm going to resolve myself to that today. He was 20 years old when he did this. Daniel was a teenager, resolved. I'm going to be dependent on God, and I'm not going to defile myself. This is the line. I'm not going to cross it, and I'm going to resolve myself to this afresh. And he did it over and over and over again, three years, possibly even longer. We need, not only do we need to renounce, we need to resolve in our hearts. We need to resolve in, in places of, of character in our life. This is the line, and I'm not going to cross it. This is what I want to be. This is the kind of person I want to be. This is the kind of husband or wife or man or woman or boss or entrepreneur or, you know, freelanc- whatever it is, this is the kind of fill in the blank, I want to be, resolve, I'm going to start renouncing things that keep me from the presence of God, and I'm going to start charting a course of character and life and obedience to God to get there. And God will meet us, and God will act. Guys, I I know that's almost dangerous to say because I'm putting God on like, like, on blast, like, God, you got to show up here, but this is exactly what Daniel did. Like, God, if God doesn't show up here, we're done. We're doomed. I, I, I want to live that way. I want to live in a way where like, okay, if God doesn't show up in this moment, we're all done. We're all done. And this is what it'll take for us today. To be faithful to Christ in our culture, in our context, in this city right now. It'll take renouncing. There's a lot of things to renounce. And it'll take Resolve. This is the way that Daniel begins to live a life of faithfulness. This is the way Daniel begins to live a life that's successful in Babylon and faithful to the call of God. And so as we close, I want to, as a church, we've been a church for almost seven years. We'll be seven years old in January. Um, I want to spend time uh, repenting as a, a church, even for a church right now, from where we as a church have drifted from devotion to Christ, passion for Christ, centrality of Jesus in our church, where maybe at the beginning we used to talk a lot about how if, if, if it's not for Christ, we're all doomed, but now we think we have it figured out. If it's not for Christ and the stuff that we do and some other good programming that we have or some other good stuff that we have as a church. I just want to repent for Whatever, However we've drifted, and I want to ask the Holy Spirit to show us now, even as a community, how we've drifted from devotion, like committed devotion, passion, centrality of Jesus, childlike faith, to repent from that together as a church and go, oh Christ, we want you in the center. We want you to be everything to us. We want to be completely devoted to you, our eyes, our mind, our heart, our lives fixed on you, and we don't want to live our life of compromise. We don't want our church to slowly ebb away because of small compromises. Lord, keep us from that. Lord, we pray now that you would keep us from drifting. I want to pray and repent, really, on, on behalf of our church community in ways that we have have slipped or drifted in our devotion to you, our our passion for you. I want to repent for thinking we're so smart, and we know how to do things now. It can't be as simple as depend on God. You need to do other things. Would you please, um, would you please forgive us of that, Lord? You might use some really strange means for us to live faithfully into this city. It might be as strange as not eating from the king's table but living off of like leeks for three years or something. That might, be, that might not seem so strange in this city, but it was strange then. What ways do we live into faithfulness to you as a church community, God? Please show us. I want to pray for... My brothers and sisters now who have compromised, who have slowly drifted away, when they moved here four years ago, they never would have thought, they never would have chose, I'm moving there so I can move away from God, but somehow they've got there. And it's devastating, it's, it's very sad, and they feel stuck, they don't know their way home. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be a guiding light leading them to Christ that they would renounce things that have, that have kept them from you, compromises that we make, silly ones, just stupid compromises that we make for things that are, are not lasting. And I pray, God, by your spirit, you give us strength to resolve, to draw lines right now, to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm drawing a line. I'm just not going to compromise that way. I'm not going to defile myself that way. I'm just not going to do it. I know that takes tremendous amount of self-control, but you promised one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So, Holy Spirit, come. We invite you now to bring your love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such there is no law Bring your spirit now, Lord. We pray in Christ's name, amen.